I'm Jeff Ebert, and welcome to my podcast, Gospel Wabi Sabi. This is season three, and we're on episode 11. Title for today's podcast is Jesus and Ecclesiastes, and we're going to be looking at the very last chapter of Ecclesiastes, chapter 12, verses 9 through 14. Now, this past week, I ran across kind of one of those uh, Instagram motivational snippets, and this one was on Japanese terms, Japanese kind of philosophical terms, and one of them was the phrase wabi-sabi. And here's how wabi-sabi was defined by this uh, Instagram post. To find peace and beauty in imperfection. To recognize that nothing in life is perfect, including yourself and others. Instead of striving for flawlessness, find joy in the imperfections that make life unique. And I thought that was a pretty good uh, way to capture the essence of uh, what we mean by wabi-sabi in this podcast. Though what we're trying to do is emulate the way of Jesus, the way Jesus walked through life, the way he treated people. And in this podcast, uh, we come to the end of our walk through the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes. Now, don't get emotional. I know it's hard. We're going to be in chapter 12, uh, starting with verse 9. But then we're going to take a break next week to help me kind of tee up our next season for season 4, which is going to be entitled God Gives Hope. And I'll be doing one podcast on each of the 12 minor prophets which is another part of the Bible that's often been overlooked by modern believers. So get ready for that starting in two weeks. Throughout the season, we've seen this teacher, whom I believe was the ancient king Solomon. He was singing the blues over the mistakes and wasted years of his own life, the false trails and dead ends that he pursued while trying to find happiness and meaning and satisfaction. He had packed his life full of power and money, booze and sex. He had followed every impulse, every desire without any restraint whatsoever. If he were here today, he'd have run with the bulls at Pamplona, climbed Mount Everest and partied at the Playboy Mansion all in the same weekend. All the things that are advertised as living life to the max, he did them all. But the teacher finally realized it was a false advertising. He had believed a lie. I thought these words from Tim Keller, the founding pastor of the Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City, an author of so many great books. And, you know, he's been fighting uh, stage four pancreatic cancer, and I'm sure he'd appreciate your prayers as he heads into another round of experimental treatments. But Tim Keller said this, The fleeting pleasures of life are senseless, useless, and insignificant if we try to live without reference and gratitude to God without reference and gratitude to God. Boy, I thought that was a great summary of what we've been learning and seeing in Ecclesiastes. There was nothing left on Solomon's bucket list, and yet the best that that the material world had to offer turned out to be meaningless mist, vacant vapor, an illusion of fantasy that left him feeling hollowed out inside like a Halloween pumpkin, just empty. The French have a great word for what he was feeling, ennui. This general feeling of listlessness and dissatisfaction bored him over his life. He was the great Gatsby of his generation, the Don Draper of his day. Solomon had all the toys of power and privilege, and along with them, this terrible, lonely ache inside. Solomon carried the scars of tremendous regret over the damage he did to himself, to his family, and to his nation. Because he got off track, his own privileged, pampered sons will soon follow in those footsteps. In one generation, they will dismantle and destroy 
everything Solomon worked so hard to build. The nation of Israel will be split by a savage civil war, and it will never recover. So Solomon is singing the blues because it's not until the last lap of his life that he comes to his senses and realizes that, that what he's been looking for has been there all the time, right under his nose, but he was too hard-headed and hard-hearted to see it. He needed God at the center of his life. It's not complicated. Without God at the center of his life, his life was a chaotic mess. And so in this last podcast, we saw that Solomon ended the book of Ecclesiastes with this one ray of hope that pierces his otherwise gloomy darkness. He says, remember God. Remember God because he's the only one who can truly satisfy the human heart. The only one who can satisfy the heart is the one who made it. In fact, the whole book of Ecclesiastes could be summarized by that great prayer of St. Augustine. God, you have formed for us, you have formed us for yourself, and our hearts are restless till they find rest in you. That's from Augustine's Confessions. Restless, ennui. That's what life is apart from God, or as the Apostle Paul put it, the great mystery of life is this, Christ in you, the hope of glory. It's Colossians 1, 27. Christ the center, like the sun at the center of the solar system, Jesus Christ is the only one who has the gravitational force, the, the essential mass to bring the rest of your scattered life into alignment. Otherwise, things will just spin out of control. Now, the last five verses of Ecclesiastes were not written by Solomon, but by some unnamed editor who adds his commentary on the life and wisdom of the teacher. We don't know who actually wrote most of the historical books of the Old Testament. Joshua, Judges, Ruth, Samuel, Kings, Chronicles, the authors of those books are never mentioned in Scripture. But these unknown editors were guided by the Holy Spirit to bring the stories of God's people together into one sacred volume. God used these anonymous editors to solidify the sacred stories of Israel. So let's hear uh, how this unnamed 30 third party put Ecclesiastes into perspective at the end. Chapter 12, verses 9 through 14. Not only was the teacher wise, but he also taught others what he knew. He pondered and searched out and set in order many proverbs. He did his best to find just the right words, and what he wrote was honest and true. The words of the wise are like the sharp sticks that the shepherds use to guide the sheep. They're collected sayings like firmly embedded nails, given by one God, the one shepherd of us all. Be warned, my child, of anything in addition to them. Of making many books there is no end, and much study wearies the body. After all this, there is only one thing to, left to say, fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the duty of all humankind. God is going to judge everything we do, whether good or bad, even things done in secret. Ecclesiastes and Jesus are separated by about a thousand years. Solomon reigned from 970 to 931 BC, and Jesus was born not quite a millennium later. Across a thousand years and in a thousand ways, Ecclesiastes and Jesus are different. At first glance, if you read Ecclesiastes and then read the words of Jesus from one of the Gospels, you might wonder what in the world they have in common. Ecclesiastes seems so dark and depressing, and Jesus is so full of light and hope. Yet they are both in the same Bible. The gospel words of Jesus and the poetic words of Ecclesiastes share the same claim 
to divine inspiration that is given to the entire Bible. Some parts are not inspired a little bit more than other parts. The historic Christian church believes they are all equally from God. And that's important to remember because sometimes people get confused and treat the parts of the Bible that are difficult to understand or harder to digest as somehow inferior to the easier, lighter, or more positive passages. But if folks always gravitate towards their favorite passages in the Bible, the ones that have been a source of inspiration or comfort to them, and then ignore or avoid the tougher parts of the Bible, well, that leads to what you might call Bible light. And Bible light inevitably leads to Christian light and faith light. One of the great challenges we face in the church today is to help people to understand the whole of what the Bible teaches, not just a few isolated passages. When people only know little bits and pieces of the Bible, it leads to all kinds of false interpretations and non-biblical thinking. For example, you may have heard it said that the Old and New Testaments really talk about two different gods. That the God of the Old Testament is harsh and judgmental, all fire and brimstone, but the God of the New Testament is all about love and puppies. The Old Testament is a meanie uh, who has all these moral laws and he's just waiting for people to step out of line so he can zap them with a lightning bolt. But the God of the New Testament just wants to give everybody a big hug and tell us that we're all okay, don't worry about it. Don't worry about that sin stuff because Jesus has got it covered. You're good to go just as you are. You know, the people who say that the Old Testament God is a God of judgment and condemnation and the New Testament God is a God of mercy and unconditional love, I'd venture to say they've probably never really studied either Testament because even a quick read of the New Testament will show that Jesus actually talked more about heaven and hell and eternal judgment than anybody else in the whole Bible. The historic Christian church insists on the unity of the old and the new. And just because the Old Testament has sections that are difficult to understand, well, work a little harder. Work a little harder. As growing Christians, you've got to engage your brain in some serious theology. Not everything that's true can fit on a little slip of paper that you might find in a fortune cookie. Please don't be fooled by that kind of simplistic thinking. It's not true. Don't be misled by that kind of false teaching. Don't be tempted to selectively quote the Bible to get it to say what you want. That's done by folks on both sides of the political spectrum on just about every social issue of the day. Selectively use the Bible to advance their particular cause. No. To be maturing followers of Jesus, we have to know the whole of Scripture and see how it all fits together. In Acts 20, verse 27, the Apostle Paul calls this the whole counsel of God. The whole counsel of God, not just a couple verses here and there, not just the easy parts, but the whole picture. We need to remember that the Bible is many stories that tell one larger story, many stories that combine to tell God's big story, God's plan of salvation. Through all the various books of the Bible, through all the various authors and styles of writing, there is actually one unified story running through it all, the story of God's plan to love you back to himself through Jesus Christ. So we shouldn't be uneasy about reading the Old Testament alongside the New. They don't stand in contradiction to each other. They tell the exact same story. Together they are the Bible, and together they tell the whole story of God's action, God's plan of redemption, God's search to bring you back to himself through Jesus Christ. The New Testament obviously builds on, or builds on all the themes and truth of the Old. And of course, we now read the Old Testament through the lens or the filter of the New Testament. It's a great advantage for us to be able to look backwards from this side of the cross and the empty tomb to read and understand the story of Scripture. Solomon and the other New Testament, Old Testament writers 
they were looking ahead. They were looking toward forward to something unseen, something that they couldn't really yet comprehend how God's Messiah would bring salvation. So as we look backwards, what is most important for us to remember is Jesus's attitude towards the Old Testament. He should be our authority on that particular matter. Now, Josh McDowell goes into this topic in many of his books. He writes that the strongest argument in support of the Old Testament comes from the Lord Jesus himself. As God in human flesh, Jesus speaks with final authority, and his testimony regarding the Old Testament is loud and clear. Jesus believed that the Old Testament was divinely inspired, the very word of God. He said in reference to the Old Testament, the Jewish scriptures of his day in John 10, 35, the scripture cannot be broken. He referred to scripture as the commandments of God in Matthew 15, 3, and as the word of God in Matthew 15, 6. He also indicated it was indestructible. Until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass away from the law until all is accomplished. That's Matthew 5, 18. Dealing with the people of his day, whether it was with the disciples or the religious leaders, Jesus constantly referred to the Old Testament. Have you not read what God said to you? He said in Matthew twenty-two thirty-one. In his preaching and teaching, Jesus quoted from all the various sections of the Old Testament, the books of Moses, the historical writings, the prophets, the Psalms. Throughout the Gospels, Jesus retold many of the famous stories of the Old Testament and confirmed their validity, such as the destruction of Sodom, and Sodom, the murder of Abel, the calling of Moses, the manna given in the wilderness. The list of examples just goes on and on. And the evidence is clear. Jesus saw the Old Testament as being God's word, and his attitude towards it was nothing less than total trust. Many people claim to accept Jesus, but they want to reject large portions of the Old Testament. Well, he quoted from it often, and he trusted it totally. So either Jesus knew what he was talking about, or he didn't. And if you believe in Jesus Christ, you have to be consistent and believe that the Old Testament and its accounts are God's word as well. Jesus also fulfilled many aspects of the Old Testament with his sacrificial work that superseded things like the Levitical sacrificial laws, all the dietary restrictions, all those are gone. That's what Mark chapter 7 verse 18 says. Jesus said, don't you see that nothing that enters a person from the outside can defile them? For if it doesn't go into their heart, but into their stomach, then out of the body, and then in quotations, Mark, uh, in quotation marks, the, the gospel writer Mark says, in saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. So there are places of the Old Testament that no longer have authority over us as Christians because they've been fulfilled or set aside by Christ. But even though there is no more need for the ceremonial laws of the Old Testament, it's still a good idea for believers to understand their place in the development of the people of Israel as the people of God. There's one more thing about Jesus and Ecclesiastes that I want to point out this morning. And that's how Jesus' teaching and preaching were really influenced by the style of teaching found in the writings of Solomon in Ecclesiastes and Proverbs. We're told in chapter 12 that Solomon pondered and searched out and set in order many Proverbs, that he did his best to find just the right words, and what he wrote was honest and true. Solomon really weighed his words carefully. He wasn't into speed writing. Each word was thoughtfully chosen. He sifted through the implications of every sentence. He debated them within himself. He wrestled and sweated over them like a dog worrying over bone, trying to get every bit of gristle from every crevice. There's no cutesy stuff in Ecclesiastes or Proverbs, no fluff. 
He was going for just the right words. And that's why his words are so memorable. That's why his phrases are so powerful. A time to be born and a time to die. People remember that. And that's why great novelists and writers like Herman Melville and Ernest Hemingway and F. Scott Fitzgerald and Dietrich Bonhoeffer, Thomas Wolfe and Martin Luther, they all counted Ecclesiastes to be not just one of their favorite books of the Bible, but one of their favorite pieces of literature. Powerful, piercing words. Bible scholar J.B. Phillips once said, If words are to enter our hearts and bear fruit, they must be the right words shaped cunningly to pass our defenses and explode silently and effectually from within our minds. You see, Solomon's words are honest and true, honest to the point of causing pain to correct our missteps like sharp sticks shepherds use to guide sheep. And his words were true like a well-driven nail, the image being that of a tent stake pounded deep into the ground so that the shepherd's tent doesn't get blown away by the desert wind. Meaning that your life will be equally well-grounded staked out by listening and obeying to the word of God. All of those same things are true of Jesus's words. Jesus's style of teaching and preaching is just like Solomon's. Jesus's words are powerful, tight, well-crafted, and pierce like a laser beam through the fog. That's why Jesus's words and images and stories are so memorable. Take this one from the Gospel of Matthew. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose up, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall, because it had its foundation on the rock. But anyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose up, the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. Matthew 7, starting with verse 24. You see, Jesus used the technique of contrasting the wise and foolish man in many of his parables. Well, guess what? Where did he get that? He got that from Solomon. And in his teaching, Jesus personally became the answer to the many questions and doubts that Solomon voiced. Where Solomon would say, there's nothing new under the sun, Jesus responds by saying, behold, I make all things new. Revelation 21.5. When Solomon bemoans how fleeting and how temporary life is, Jesus says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will stand forever. Matthew 24.35. Where Solomon would say that life that his life has been meaningless and empty, Jesus shouts, I have come that you might have life in all its abundance. You see, Ecclesiastes is part of the movement of Scripture that brings us toward God's Messiah, Jesus. Ecclesiastes does not have the last word. God's story wasn't finished when Solomon put down his pen. That story, Solomon's story, is finished by Jesus. Ecclesiastes is one man's struggle to reconcile his own flawed choices and failures and sins with the goodness of God, and it represents how the Old Testament was preparing people for the Messiah, because it is this sense of helplessness and hopelessness in Ecclesiastes that enables anyone to be ready to hear the good news of Jesus' salvation. Let me say that again. It is this sense of hopelessness in Ecclesiastes that enables people to be ready to hear the good news of God's salvation in Jesus. 
Ecclesiastes, more than any other biblical writer, so accurately describes our human situation of being far away from God. If you remember Ecclesiastes' words in chapter 5, verse 2, God is in heaven and you are on earth. Well, that's the problem. This gap between God and humanity, the gap is what creates the emptiness of the human heart. And Solomon is really looking for a go-between, someone who can connect the righteous God of heaven with the flawed humanity of this earth. He doesn't see it in his own day. He doesn't understand what God will do about that, but he's looking ahead. Solomon gave an unflinching examination of the human situation, a rejection of the kind of notion that we in any way can save ourselves, that we can earn our salvation or be good enough for God. We can't lift ourselves to heaven. And had Solomon been on earth when Jesus walked the roads of Palestine, he would have been one of the first to throw everything else away and follow him. It's not complicated. Let me just conclude this uh, whole season with a story about the famous theologian, Dr. Karl Barth. He was one of the greatest theologians and thinkers of the 20th century. Just about every uh, reliable or reputable Reformed seminary student I know is still required to plow through um, Barth's most famous books, and they are very long and filled with really big words. When he was in the last lap of his life, Dr. Barth, this incredibly wise teacher, went on a worldwide speaking tour where he lectured at all the prestigious seminaries and universities across several continents. He was hosted in great cathedrals and rubbed elbows, elbows with the, uh, the greatest minds of his day. It was quite the whirlwind tour. And when he returned to his homeland in Switzerland, he was asked to share what was the one single most profound thought he had encountered during his worldwide travels. People couldn't wait to hear what this great insight would be. And with a faint smile, this elderly theologian, this premier intellectual giant, he answered this, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. I think Solomon, I think Ecclesiastes, I think the teacher would agree. It's not that complicated. Hey, thanks for being with me through this whole season. I hope it's been a blessing to you. And I hope you'll share Gospel Wabi Sabi with others who might be interested in going deeper into Scripture in the way that we've been doing it. Have a great week. 